Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. This is our Wednesday show, and we're going to switch gears. Have you ever wanted to eat fruits and berries from your garden? Get rid of your suburban lawn and your lawn tractor and have a ton of birds and wildlife and water and all sorts of living things around your home? Well, you've come to the right place. A new book is out that describes the edible forest garden. It's called the home scale forest garden, how to plant, how to plan, plant, and tend a resilient edible landscape. The author of that book is the owner of a place called Cross Island Farms. Her name is Danny Baker, and she joins us now. Hello, Danny. Welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Okay. First of all, you got to tell us where you live because, uh, <laughs> you, you live in a place, we all in Vermont, of course, we all think we live in Shangri-La with our ba- with our backyard <laughs> gardens, but you live on a place called Wellesley Island. Tell us about that. I live on a nine-mile-long island in the middle of the St. Lawrence River. It's in the northern New York State. It's a U.S. island, and it's interstate access. I-81 comes over from the mainland on the Thousand Island Bridge to Wellesley, and then it goes on from here into Canada. Wow. And what do you do there? Well, um, my partner Dave and I have a certified organic farm. It's very diversified. We have 102 acres here on the island, and uh, we're in hardiness zone four, so it's very similar to most, you know, many parts of Vermont. Um, we raise uh, certified 100% grass-fed beef and goats, and we have some chickens and ducks, and we have vegetables, and we have the enchanted edible forest. And we'll we'll get to the fact that you uh, give. Listen closely, audience, tours of this place. But uh, tell us, this this has not been your life and career your entire life. This is fairly new. Fairly new. Um, although, you know, I, I did a lot of gardening as a child. Um, my parents bought a, a brand-new house that was built on half of an acre that used to be a cornfield, so there was no landscaping. And I got to do a lot of the, you know, pitchforking over the sod to make beds and digging holes for trees and stuff. So it's from age 6 to about 13 when we moved to a city. So that was a big part of my upbringing. Um, and then in college, I wasn't really very happy in college, and I fantasized about being a farmer even then. But my... Um, I was the first to go to college in my family, so it wasn't really something I could talk about. You know, my parents expected me to be a professional, and that's what I was. I was a psychologist. That was what I did for my career, and I'm retired now, and this is my retirement gig, organic farming. (laughs) And tell us about the book. Um, Let's do the what of the book. What's in the book? Okay, so in the book, it's it's really – a handbook or a guide for anyone who wants to do a a planting like this at any scale. So it doesn't have to be, you know, my garden is an acre. It can just be a foundation planting on one side of your house, or it can be, you know, a little plot in your backyard with one tree and many other edibles surrounding it, or it can be an edible hedge. Um, So the first section of the book really talks about how to to, um, 
study your land, understand all the little microclimates and the types of soil and all of that, and how to plan your planting. And then the the central part of the book talks about, I think, around 125 edible plants that you can incorporate. Um, And then the last section gives you some ideas for how to group plants together. Um, And there's several sketches and some diagrams and some photos showing some various combinations for different habitats, like uh, sunny and dry or wet and shady. And just as a jumping off point for you to think about how you want to design your planting. Uh, I did, we did this at our place near Montpelier, Vermont. Uh, we got rid of the front lawn that borders a road and it's just teeming with, uh, chokeberries, elderberry, uh, plums. You can do this in northern climates. You can do it in northern climates. You can do it anywhere. And the beauty of it is I have a friend who kind of uh, apprenticed herself to me when she was living in this area. She's now in Maryland in the suburbs of D.C. And she's she's planted her entire backyard in edibles, just like you described. And all the birds and the bees and the wildlife are in her yard. They're not in her neighbor's yard where they have lawns and they're using Roundup and, you know, whatever. They're all coming to her place. So it doesn't take a lot to bring nature back. Well, that, that, that struck me as well reading the book and my own experience. You can do this at all sorts of levels. You, you can, it can be your passion and you can do it full time, but you can also, just take on a, a little bit um, and do it on a very small scale way. It sometimes beats killing yourself in your vegetable garden, uh, weeding all day. Oh, totally. Because the, you know these are all perennials. So once they're established, and I don't want to minimize the amount of labor that goes into establishing it because it's significant. You know, you're digging holes for trees and bushes, and you're mulching to to keep weeds out until you have ground cover established. But once it's established, the amount of labor is so much less than annual vegetables. Okay, what led you to the book? Oh, well, actually, I started giving talks, you know, about different different aspects of this kind of uh, planting. And um, a senior editor at Chelsea Green approached me when I was giving a talk at NOFA New York in Syracuse a few years ago and invited me to submit a proposal and for a book. And I thought about it for a while, and I thought I just couldn't pass up the opportunity, so I did. And the proposal was accepted, and the rest is history. <laughs> um, now... You're, people are going to be crazy about this, but I'm a secret fan of Martha Stewart uh, for this reason. Um, she has in her magazines and websites a calendar for, you know, the entire year. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. you know, uh, October, you know, bring in the deck chairs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really good. And you sort of tape it to your wall and it, it kind of gives you a roadmap for mm-hmm. what you should be doing every day. And mm-hmm. I was just, just so excited to discover that basically you have the same thing when it comes to a forest garden. You have a calendar for when you should be ordering uh, uh, trees and shrubs for, for the following year and when to plant them and how to get your place organized. So tell us about that calendar. I just love it. It's called Stewardship Through the Seasons, and it's in the appendix. And I honestly, I actually refer to it now myself. I'm like, what should I be doing now? Right. Right. <laughs> um, it starts with early winter, which would be essentially um, 
December into January, and it, it, there's there's 12 sections, so they refer to three for each season, essentially. Um, and so, for example, right now, I would say it is mid-fall. Continue painting trunks. You know, you have to paint your trunks so that they don't split when the sun is hot in 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 March when it's hot in the day and then it gets really cold fast and a lot of your fruit tree trunks will split because of the, the drastic and rapid change in temperature. So if you paint them white, they reflect the light and they don't get as hot and so they don't get, you know, the contrast isn't as great and they're less likely to split. But um, continue installing screen guards around bushes. So we have rodent issues under the snow. They like to girdle um, bushes, especially cherries. They love to eat the bark of cherries. So I, for the trees, I use um, hardware cloths, uh, circular, like cylindrical guards. But for the bushes, you can't really do that because they're spreading out right over the ground. So I take screening, like a metal screen, and I wrap it around and I clip it with a couple of clothespins. That's just an example of some of the things I'm doing right now. Um, I was just mulching some blackberries today, this morning, before our, our conversation, because <laughs> they need a little extra frost protection, um, you know, more warmth for the roots over the winter, so I was just doing that this morning. So those are just a few examples, and I have something for every part of the year, including harvesting, um, you know, when you harvest things and, um, you know, what you can do with them, when you can make your jams and stuff like that. Danny, let's talk about me for a minute. I've got I've got 40 blueberries, uh, blueberry bushes in in the on a hillside of in full sun, and they are absolutely fantastic. But when I prune them, I, I get really afraid of destroying them. And then I go to YouTube and learn that you got to take out 20 percent of that bush every year for them to stay healthy. Right. Right. Well, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, you know, I felt the same way when I first started pruning. I, I don't have blueberries because they don't have acid soil, but I have currants. And I, I was worried about destroying the bushes, but you do, it, 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 um, pruning them actually opens them up so the light gets in. It also stimulates growth. It makes the berries bigger because you're cutting out some branches. So the remaining flowers and berries are going to be bigger. And it just rejuvenates the bush. Um, and you know these perennials are so resilient; it really it, you really can't hurt them. <laughs> right, right. Um, but your book is not just about the the conventional stuff, the the blueberries, the raspberries. There's all sorts of exotic uh, stuff that if people really want to dig in, elderberry, chokeberry, mm-hmm. uh, vines, and fungi. Garden strawberries. I mean, it's just all there. I guess my question is, how would someone start? You know well, what I mean? I think, yeah, I, you know, just, you know, look over your property. Um, you know, think about an area that you might want to plant in something you can eat that's perennial. And then study, you know, check your soil. What kind of soil do you have? How much light is there? What kind of moisture exists in that plot? Um, and then, I, you know, I just looked at a lot of catalogs. Yeah. Um, and, and in my, in my um, appendix, I have some re- a resource section where I list some of the nurseries that I bought from. And often their catalogs or their websites are very, um, have a lot of information about the plants. 
and you know the habitats they like and you know what the what the the fruit is like or the nuts or whatever it is um and i also read a bunch of books yeah which also had descriptions of plants some some familiar and some very exotic <laughs> yeah and then i thought about you know i didn't want like for example i i I had never seen a quince. I'd never tasted a quince, but um, I thought, you know, some of them are zoned for my zone. So I thought, gee, maybe I could grow one. But I didn't want to grow something that I had a process. I wanted something I could eat fresh, and I found one that I could, and that's the one I decided to plant. So, you know, depending, you know, there's other considerations. You know, do you just want to walk out in your yard and nibble something, or do you want to have enough to can? And that'll determine, you know, the quantity of, of some particular bush or plant that you want to put in. Um, it's, all some, it's all very individual, and there's, there's an infinite number of possibilities. Here in central Vermont, um, I, I love your appendix of resources where to go for more information. Of course, Johnny's is on there from Maine. I would add uh, our homegrown nursery, um, East Hill Tree Farm, uh, with Nico Rubin is there, and that's where we get all our stuff. And it's just, it's the best half-day trip of the year. Uh, oh, that sounds great. To go there. And, if, oh, yeah, put it in there. I'm going to, if East Hill Tree Farm... Um, if if the publisher lets me do a second edition, I'll include it. <laughs> yeah. uh, Danny, what did you what did you learn by writing the book? By writing the book? Yeah, what it, it, you know, writing a book is not easy. It takes a lot of time, a lot of work, and then they come yeah. back to you with their edits and. Well, that was the hard part. Right, the editing. Um, you know. I was in a PhD program when I was in my 20s, and I never wrote the book. I never finished it because I just didn't have the this, this personal skills and the, you know, the self-discipline, all that to do it. And I was such a perfectionist that I, I couldn't even start. But this one was easy because I've been giving, I've taken a lot of pictures of the garden. I've been giving PowerPoint presentations. And, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. So I would look at a picture and I'd, I'd write a thousand words about it. <laughs> Yeah, right. It wasn't really that hard, and I disciplined myself. Um, I I started working like I, I I figured out I had I I said I the contract I negotiated gave me just four months to complete it. So I realized I had to write a chapter a week. So I got up early in the morning, like three or four in the morning. I started writing. I figured I had to do eighteen hundred words a day. I did my eighteen hundred words. If I finished a chapter before the week is up, I gave myself a day off. And that's essentially how I did it. The hardest chapter was the one that I didn't have a lot of pictures representing the content. That was the hardest one for me. That took me 10 days. Right. You, <laughs> so, I'm sorry. Well, you, you write about overstory and understory. Could you explain what that means? Certainly. So the idea of this kind of, of an edible forest is you're, you're mirroring nature. You're mirroring essentially a forest edge. Now, if you think about a cut in the road um, where there's a forest on the edge of the road, you, there'll be tall trees, like over 30 feet tall. There'll be shorter trees, maybe 10 to 20, 30 feet. That would be the understory. There are lots of shrubs and bushes. There's herbaceous plants. There's ground cover. And there's even vines curling up where it's nice and bright. So that's what the forest, the forest garden tries to utilize all those vertical layers 
to the extent that you can. Now, if you're doing a foundation planting and you can only go to like a tall shrub, like 10, 12 feet, because you're going to hit the roof, that's fine. You know, the idea is you'll have shrubs, you'll have herbaceous, you'll have ground cover. You might even have a, a couple of vines there, so you'll have four of the seven layers. Um, you know, you just want to use, you want to, you want to maximize your absorption of solar radiation. So the more, the more layers you have going vertically, the more solar rays you're going to, you're going to absorb. Got it. Okay. Uh, now, Wellesley Island, St. Lawrence River, uh, it says in the promo material that you give tours. That's cat, that's catnip for a lot of us. How do we do that? <laughs> Well, um, you plan a vacation in the Thousand Islands. There's lots of camping available here. Um, there's even kayak camping on the river. Um, the, the, uh, the Canadians have a series of islands that are open for camping. So that's really, I've done that. It's wonderful. But um, yeah, there's lots of hotels and motels and all that. So you come up for a vacation. There's lots to do up here. It's a summer resort area, essentially. And you give me a call and say, I'm going to be, or email, say, I'm going to be in the area. I'd love to have a tour of your edible forest or the farm. And um, we'll set a time and day when it's good for both of us, and I'll show you around. Now, it's, uh, I, just, I mapped it. It's 180 miles from my house in Montpelier. And we, from time to time, go to Kingston, Ontario, which is nearby. I just love that right town. Right across the river. Yeah, yep. I love that town. And so uh, that's – I think that's a weekend in my future uh, as well go. as – I'd love to, love to host you here. Okay. It would be great. All right. So, Danny, uh, one, what's the top word of advice you'd have to someone uh, who might want to turn their tiny uh, backyard – lot into no more lawn, no more mowing, and into an edible forest garden? What's the top word of advice? I would say um, take, an, you know, take an experimental attitude, you know, make your best guess of what's going to do well, and, and plant it. Just, just do it. You know, don't, don't, you know, you know, don't, just, you know, plant it, plant it, and then observe what happens. And if things don't do well, I mean, I've, there's one bush I've transplanted three times before I found a spot that it was happy in. You know, so observe your plants, seeing how they're doing. Try to figure out, you know, what's, which ones are doing well, which ones maybe need either to be moved or need some whatever. I don't know. There's too much shade. There's too much light, whatever. And just over time, you will learn so much. Um, just from from observing and and uh, you know not expecting yourself to be perfect from the beginning. Yeah, that's you know? for sure. And plants will die. Plants will die. That's right. You know, and through no fault of your own. So just see if you can figure out why it happened and try not to try to prevent that in the future. But you can't always. I mean, I have a, in my book I have a picture of all these labels, and that's just part of the labels of things that died on me. So. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, oh, here's, here's one from me. Uh, let's, let's do a plug for no dig gardening. Uh, you do a lot of work as I do with, uh, your old Amazon boxes. Uh, you, because you, yep. you prepare the ground by laying a cardboard box, flattened it yep. over the grass, kills the grass. Then you top it with organic matter and you've got a whole new garden area. I would, yep. I would emphasize remove the plastic tape before you do it. Yep, and don't use, don't put anything on there that has staples or anything like that. I would just use plain brown cardboard. Yep. 
And and what that is that? Great. And what does that do? Tell us why it, that's well, good. Well, it cuts the light. It cuts the light from the grass below. Um, you do have to overlap it, like at least eight inches, so that crack grass can't get it can't get up through. Um, I would use a couple of layers if you have some really difficult perennial weeds under there. Um, but um, yeah, it cuts the light, and then all that organic matter, you know, the the um, the and and the cardboard will will eventually decay. Uh, earthworms love cardboard, so as it gets, you know, I usually do this in the fall, and then the winter snows and and fall rains, winter snows, and so on, moisten everything, and so the cardboard slowly degrades, and all that organic matter on top, which in my case is mostly tree leaves from the fall and some wood chips on top to keep them from blowing away, all of that starts to decompose, and so you're actually, you know, you're basically composting in place, and by spring, often you can plant in there. You know, the sod is is dead, and you can plant. And in one minute, Danny, tell us what a hugliculture mound is. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, you start with, with uh, logs or wood, and you pack them close together, and that's your base. And then you pile all kinds of organic matter on top to make the shape and, and size that you want and height. And basically, um, the the wood acts as a water sink and also slowly decays and provides um nutrition for the plants you're going to put on top and then all that organic matter you pile on top is going to gradually decompose and form fabulous humus and it's a way to get above rocky soil or pure rock or in my case um, I have woods that have standing water and I wanted to grow stuff in there so I built these mounds in there Um, it also you know gives you it, it 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 gives you several microclimates because the top is dry and 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 uh, and well drained and then down in the north side you have more shade and moisture and then you have a southern slant so you can you know actually increase your growing days there. Is my minute up? <laughs> <laughs> she is the author of the Home Scale Forest Garden: How to Plan, Plant, and Tend a Resilient edible landscape. Her name is Danny Baker, and you can visit her at Cross Island Farms. Just Google it. She's in the St. Lawrence River, and uh, I can't wait to meet you in person. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. That's Danny Baker. Now that is a weekend trip. Uh, we're going. I haven't informed the other person that lives in my house, but uh, we're trying to emulate uh, Danny at, at our place, and uh, we have a lot of the same things going on. Not as professional as this. It's a great book. Go check it out at your local bookstore, Bridgeside Books and Waterbury, or my favorite, Bear Pond Books. Go see Claire. Ask for Claire. Make her come down the stairs and uh, serve you, you know, uh, take care of you personally. I'm Kevin Ellis. We're coming back to talk to my buddy Liz Schlegel about flood relief in Waterbury and elsewhere. After this, you're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint. And now we're going to talk, we're going to return to flood recovery. You, you, you will remember as faithful listeners to this show that we took the flood seriously. When it happened, uh, we were mucking out, uh, and then we took the show on the road, and we did shows in the field from Nelson's Hardware in Barrie, 
Harry's Hardware in Cabot, and we went up to Jenna's Promise Cafe in Johnson. Uh, we did, uh, we were at the Hub in Montpelier talking to the Positive Pie folks and lots of other merchants. We've had Julia Watson on from uh, Capital Grounds Coffee on this show. And we're going to stay with it because, as I've learned, uh, flood recovery is not, doesn't take a week, doesn't take a month, it takes years. Uh, there's the physical recovery, then there's the emotional recovery. There's a lot that goes into this. And I would point out, having gone up to Burlington for a couple of meetings yesterday, you know, you're in Burlington or Chittenden County, and mostly Burlington, and it is as if the flood never happened. Uh, and I think that's, I mean, it's perfectly natural for the folks in Burlington not to, not to have this top of mind because it didn't happen to them. But if you live in Johnson, that now doesn't have a grocery store anymore. Uh, if you live in any of these communities that got hit, you know, Montpelier, we're celebrating the return of Bohemian Bakery and other places, but it is a struggle. And Waterbury, where we are broadcasting, is no stranger to that struggle. And our guest is Liz Schlegel, a citizen of Waterbury extraordinaire, flood recovery volunteer and volunteer in, oh, I don't know, a thousand other Pursuits in this town. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's exciting to be here. <laughs> okay. Uh, why don't we start with the announcement of the formation of a new group? Well, we are starting Waterbury Crew, right, which is Love it. Computer, community resilience for the greater Waterbury area because it's encompassing not just Waterbury, but Duxbury, Bolton, Middlesex, Moortown, the surrounding towns, to be able to provide what FEMA calls long-term recovery support. Okay. And let's, and, and I see that the, the contact on the press release, including in, in addition to you, is Bill Sheplock, who I call the Michael Jordan of uh, town managers, he, I see him in Casey's Bagels downstairs before I do the show, and he brags about his retirement as the town manager of Waterbury. Clearly, he has been drafted back into service. We are so lucky that Bill agreed to chair this group. He is just such a wealth of re- resources and knowledge and uh-huh. relationships and commitment to this community. It's just been incredible. Okay, so what's Cruz going to do? So we are um, really looking to help people get to where they need in their recovery. There are folks who are there, right? I had a conversation with somebody yesterday. They said, we're done. We're great. Got all the money we needed. You know, the furnace is back on, right? We're we're not going to think about this anymore. Right. But a lot of people are not in that um, condition, FEMA and other long-term disaster recovery national groups say it's about two years that a community will be grappling with this. And, of course, if people had problems or challenges before the water came, they still have them. A lot of the folks that we're focusing on are elderly and might not have local family to help them. Maybe they have a disability. Maybe they're just living without enough money. And that makes everything so much harder. One of the challenges about the FEMA process is that they expect you to appeal. Right. Multiple times. I've noticed that. They just expect it. It's normal. 
but we don't expect to do that. Right. You get that number. It's not great. You feel kind of lousy, but you're like, okay, that's it. I'm going to go figure out how to do this without that money. Yeah. And when I speak to the FEMA folks, they are like, well, of course they should appeal. It's a whole, right, the, the administrative burden is huge on the resident, right? And, of course, for business owners, there isn't FEMA, right? I mean, that's a whole separate topic. We can talk about that. In I had day. him on the show, and uh, you know. Dave Mace, the former reporter for the Times Argus, who now works for FEMA, and he says, and I must admit, I was shocked when he said, we don't help small business. Right. We help homeowners. Right. It was amazing. They also help communities. They and do. And that is, right, so they have an individual program and a public program. And they have been, you know, there's tons of FEMA people in the state. They've been working very hard. It's still, they have a big process yeah. that doesn't necessarily map onto how Vermont operates, right? We're a bunch of small town folks, Right. And, and the kinds of resources I think that they expect towns to have, we all often don't have. Yeah. They expect us to be Sudbury, Massachusetts. Yeah. Actually, they expect us to be, um, a county in Texas. Sure. Right. That's, that's and, right. and we don't do county stuff in yeah. Vermont or most right. of New England. Yeah. Right. So a lot of their models have to be, you know, we got to right size them. Yeah. Some of the other groups, I do want to say long-term recovery groups are forming all over the state. So the Waterbury area one, you know, we're up and running. The um, Barry Up is supporting Barry City, right? There's a group called Hope Coalition um, that is supporting like outside of Barry City, kind of central Vermont. There's groups in the southern part of the state, which is, of course, in the same condition we are up here. And then Lamoille County has the Lamoille Area Recovery Network, also called LEARN. It's kind of being hosted by the United Way, right? But everybody is, we're sharing and trading ideas and resources and how are you doing this? What are you doing about helping people? Did you see that report from Efficiency Vermont, right? So there's a lot of collaboration across the state that we're building for ourselves because we need it. You guys have a weekly, monthly meeting. How can, how can, I guess, regular Waterbury, Duxbury, Middlesex, and other nearby, how can folks plug into what you're doing? So for crew, we right now are meeting weekly. Um, we're about to get our website up and running. We have an email, info at thecrewvt.org. But if people need help, right, with their recovery, and I'll talk in a minute about some of the challenges people are facing, they should go to the waterburyhelp at gmail.com, which is the original email we set up during the immediate response. Waterbury help. So if you're over, oh, I don't know, 45 years old, we'll do this slowly. Waterburyhelp at gmail.com. Right. And that is the email we set up the day after the flood. Okay. Right. So those first few weeks, we ran everything right through that email address. And um, that was me and several amazing volunteers from the select board doing what I now know is called the first response. Right. Right. And then it moves into recovery, which is kind of where we are now. Right. Right. And Tom Drake is still managing that, but we work, Tom is on the crew board. We work very closely. And so if anyone needs help, they need information, 
they don't know what to do, they need to figure out where they can get more money or some volunteer labor, that's the email address to reach out to. We're going to take a call from Anne in Waterbury. Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking my call, Kevin. Uh, two things. One, thank you, Liz, and many, many thanks to Tom Drake. He's been absolutely incredible, and I was so impressed how fast Liz organized and contacted everybody who in the flood. I was so impressed with what we had learned from Irene and how well those uh, lessons were put to work. And I just can't thank Tom Drake enough. He has been so helpful to me. It's been incredible. The second thing is FEMA. I feel so sorry for those people. They were being lodged down in uh, White River Junction yeah. uh, and, and brought up here every day. And I was so, I ended up being so frustrated with FEMA and the SBA. I'm still getting calls from the SBA. One woman who called me, uh, it was mid-September, uh, she was from SBA, and asked, you know, do I have water? Do I have electricity? Do I have heat? Well, at that point, I had everything but my new furnace. And I said, that'll be in October 2nd. She hit the wall and argued with me for at least five minutes, saying I could not live in my house without heat. And I kept saying, it's, you know, I'll have it October 2nd. This is September. They don't, they didn't understand. They were all from the South. They were all very nice. But what they have to put up with since Homeland Security took over so many departments of government uh they just can't function and uh i just gave up i you know fortunately i had a little bit of a stock portfolio and i could rely on that and you know i just can't be bothered with any more nonsense from fema and the sba it was just so terribly frustrating but again, thank you, Liz, and many thanks to Tom Drake. Yeah, and that again, is so Tom. nice, really. So much appreciate no. the call, and you have put up with so much from lots of people, not just FEMA and the SBA. Uh, you know, well. and, and I, I, I love what you say because, you know, it's easy to beat up on FEMA, uh, and, I mean, it's just it's convenient, but... They are what they are. They, we, we have them and we've got to deal with it, but, uh, and get over our frustration. So, uh, you know, thank you. Oh, I just, I felt sorry for, for those women and, yeah. and men, uh, because they were from, most of them from the South and just didn't understand yeah. Vermont or the northern part of the country. So. Yeah, you need uh, your furnace in September. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Thanks again, Liz and Kevin. And thank you for the call. Uh, we need to say a telephone number and a date, Liz, uh, a FEMA telephone number and date. Well, the telephone number is for Waterbury Help, right. right? It's our number where folks can leave messages if they'd rather not email. Okay, say it slowly. And that's 802 585 
1-800-222-1152, and that Tom Drake um, will call back after his day job of being a teacher. And that is where people can leave messages if they don't want to email waterburyhelp at gmail.com. But the FEMA deadline is October 31st. And while they've extended it several times, we're not sure that it will be extended again. And I know, and Anne made the point of how challenging it can be to deal with all this administrative work, but if you haven't applied for FEMA, you can go online. Unfortunately, the Barry Center is closed right now. Um, it will reopen on the 30th, but our center closed last week. But you can go online to FEMA.gov, and you can apply right there. It's worth applying because then you can get into that appeal process, and the Vermont Law School and Vermont Legal Aid have a group of legal helpers to help with those appeals. It's incredible. They're doing a great job. They have a bunch of dedicated staff. So that, I'll give the number for that later so we don't get too confused. But it is a really important part of the process that FEMA expects people to appeal. And people should appeal because they need these resources. And we want to help folks get every dollar to help them make their homes safe and resilient. And that means, for example, if you move your electrical panel up from the basement, you can get a little extra money from FEMA. Of course, it's a different process, right? That's called mitigation. But also, crew can help cover the cost of that. So if your electrician says, hey, that's going to be an extra 500 bucks to move it to the first floor, we can help meet that. Because we want in, in Waterbury, it was basement flooding. Right. We want to help get those basements empty over right. the course of time. So that's where we talk about the resilience piece. It strikes me, Liz, that in the three minutes we have left, that you're getting good at this in Waterbury. I mean, I, I just – Tropical Storm Irene, there were lessons learned. Clearly, not all the lessons were learned. Clearly, we didn't harden and get resilient in a, in, in an A-plus kind of way. We did a little bit. Uh, we did some really good things. But there's more left to do as these storms get worse. We, but the the good news to me is that, like, you're here and Sheplock's here and Waterbury is getting good at this. We have a big committee, yeah. right? We're lo- actively looking for volunteers. So if folks from anywhere would like to volunteer, right, that's info at thecrewvt.org. But we want to get good at this as a yeah. community to be able to respond when stuff happens to plan for the next one because, unfortunately, I don't think it's 12 years away. No. Right? And to be able to support each other. I I have that river monitor on my phone. I look at it every day. You do? Yes. Yeah. Right? Because we're going to get good at living with the river. It's water, Barry. Yeah. Right? We're going to get good at the water part. Yeah, I, I... I parked this morning at the at the municipal at the library because it has an electric charger there, and I looked at those ball fields. Uh, they're just going to be underwater all the time. It's okay, and, and it's okay that right. that's a good purpose for right. those fields. Right. They'll drain. Right. We sh- I'm glad we didn't put housing down there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, 
okay, what else do people need to know? This includes not just Waterbury, the, right. the crew effort. All the surrounding towns, right? So Duxbury, Bolton, Moortown, Middlesex. If folks need help or they don't know where to get help or they just need to say, who is the right place for me to contact yeah. if I need a little extra money? The Waterbury Good Neighbor Fund has been doing incredible work. We help connect people to them in terms of helping people you know, meet their financial needs. And then there will be additional money available from the state, and we'll help people connect to that. So anybody can call us, and if it's not us, we'll get you to the group that is supporting your region. Liz Schlegel, she is the vice chair of a new group called CREW. The chair is Bill Shepluck, the former town manager at Waterbury, and they're all about uh, recovery from the flood there's numbers to call, uh, info at thecrewvt.org, or if you need help right away, call uh, email waterburyhelp at gmail.com. we got to go. Liz Schlegel, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your dedication to this issue, Kevin. Any time. Open ticket to come on the show. <laughs> Thanks. No, I love being here, and I love what WDEV does for all of us. And if you can't uh, get Schlegel on the phone or an email, she lives downtown. You can probably bump into her on the street walking her dog. That is our show for today. Don't uh, don't go away because the governor's press conference is coming on next. Uh, and if I have to introduce the governor because they're delayed, I will do that. My thanks to our guests today, Joe Sexton, Chris Winters, the commissioner of DCF, Danny Baker about forest gardening, and Liz Schlegel on flood recovery. If you want to be a guest on this show, send us a suggestion for a topic. Just drop me an email at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Our goal is to illuminate and inform and have some fun along the way. I'm here Wednesdays and Fridays. You can find me at kevinkellis.com. Subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest. Check out my new podcast, although we are 22 episodes in. As always, we'll talk politics, media, culture, and everything else on my mind and yours. Our show's produced by me, made possible by today by Greg Titus. Thanks for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here Friday on VT Viewpoint Live Radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV.